This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So, Bree, I remember this one time I was in a bike race around Tucson, and uh, I wasn't paying attention. We were riding down 4th Avenue, and there's railroad tracks, like street track tracks, and my bike's tire like went and wedged in to the railroad tracks, no. and I totally fell down and just like skinned my hands, everything. Ugh. I had nothing with me, nothing at all. And it's that times where you want a first aid product and you have nothing. And <laughs> active skin repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. I've used it on my son's mosquito bites, and I wish I would have had it the time I totally scraped up my hands. Oh, I hear you. Like whenever I go paddleboarding, kayaking, I'm always trying to find something that is like an all-in-one that I can take with me. And active skin repair could be used like that. It can be used to treat cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, which makes it suitable for all skin types, all parts of the body, like eczema and acne-prone skin, all of that. With over 500,000 happy customers, thousands of five-star reviews, and ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order. Use code NOGUILT. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom podcast. I am your host, Joanne Crone, joined here by my co-host, Brew Tucker. Ba-dum, ba-dum. Hello, everybody. Ba-dum, How are you? Ba-dum. Like that? Ba-dum, ba-dum. I like that. Ba-dum, I, like, ba-dum. I like bees. They're fun. Ba-bum, ba-bum. <laughs> we could do like all of the vocal warm-ups. I'm sure all of you listening would enjoy us just doing vocal warm-ups for you. Yeah? Future podcast episode. Yeah. Today's yeah. episode is brought to you by the bee sound. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. I hope that you take that throughout your day and that yes. everything you see, you'll be like, but I'm, but I'm, we great. should try that. We should try like a day challenge. Yeah. Of like every time we see somebody starting our sentence of the first time we're talking to somebody for that day yeah. with a, but I'm, but I'm, but I think it would be a fun social experiment. There's like that Muppet skit. I love that song. Do you know they have, you know, Cake did a cover of it? No, I didn't. And Cake being a band that is pretty much spoken word, a little bit of rap plus rock. like it's, Yes, it's so funny. It's because very interesting. Do you know that spoken word thing? It was very prevalent in the 90s. And there's a lot of 90s songs with the spoken word. And we listened to this on, uh, we listened to Lithium, which is on XM. Yes, I missed my subscription to that. I need yeah. to get back on that. So we were in the car and oh, every time one of those songs comes on, my kids are like, this isn't a song. What are they doing? Like, like they're just like talking. Back- Back, yeah, back. <laughs> oh, the nineties! Such a such a lovely time. We were like, this was a thing in the nineties. They're like, oh, did you see that that Holderness family skit that I sent you recently? I don't know. For, which for one. those of you that lot. listen, I know I do. a lot of Holderness yeah. family. For those of you that listen them. to us, you know that we love the Holderness family <laughs> so much. Love, um, but she did one last week about nineties music and how we're all like. Ah, 90s music was so much better than the music these days. It's totally and then she better. Like, compares the lyrics and she's like, oh. <laughs> there was some stuff about the 90s though, it. because 
they're like, oh, BuzzFeed and whatever those BuzzFeed articles get me all the time where mm-hmm. it's like top 20 uh, photos from MTV Spring Break that will take you back. And I'm like, oh, I remember MTV Spring Break. And so I click. Actually, this might have been Cosmo and not whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Anyways, so I was looking through and you saw like Molly Sims and you saw Rebecca Romaine and like Mandy Moore before she was like, this is us, Mandy Moore. She was right. like singer Mandy she Moore. She was like 15 Mandy Moore. Yeah. Yeah. And Oh my gosh, I had such a horrible like body like image in the 90s. And just looking at those pictures, I'm like, and there's where my horrible body image came from. Because Aww. in the 90s, it was like the thing to be like very stick thin. Well, you had uh, Kate Moss. Kate Moss. But even supermodel. like looking at the pictures of Rebecca Romaine and Molly Sims, like they were stick thin, like even now, which I'm glad that like we have a much better body image now. I mean, it's not perfect, but it mm-hmm. is. It did not look like the 90s. I should show you. You'd be like, what? Like what we thought was like acceptable body image for like women and how women should look like. It was ridiculous. I do have a moment where I come back to that myself for self-reflection. Um, let's see. What was it? Sophomore or junior year of college, mm-hmm. I went on a road trip back at because I went to college in Missouri, but my family lived out here in Arizona. So we yeah. road tripped out here with a couple of my sorority sisters. And I remember that myself and my two college roommates, we went and got uh, belly button piercings because, you know, we were 20. I we wanted that, one of right? those. Yeah. yeah. So we did it. And there's a picture of all of us with our shirts up and our little belly button piercings. And I remember looking at that picture nowadays. I'm like, oh, look how look how toned we were. Look how like small we were. And I remember thinking to myself at that time that I was so not skinny. I was huge. And again, all those negative, negative thoughts. It's, it's your image it's, of yourself. Yeah. Right. It's interesting how that inner dialogue mm-hmm. really, really can morph so many things in life. It does. Yeah. It does. And now let's change to our guest, Jessica Leahy. <laughs> well, if we do talk a little bit about past experiences with this episode, and mm-hmm. I just have to be excited, Jessica's another part of our two timers club. The and second I mean, timers that's a positive. Club. Second the timers. Second <laughs> we decided like, we like, can't say two timers. It's like they're cheating. Two timers. <laughs> <laughs> two timers. Okay. Second timers club. What's up for Jessica Leahy? Yes. Jessica Leahy, one of our favorites because she is just, she's so down to earth and so knowledgeable. Like, she, I love talking to her because I learn so much every time that we have an interview with her, anytime we chat. And she's so like giving with her information. Right, right. She is a giver. And, you know, we quote her first book quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You the know, Gift of Failure. The Gift of Failure. And I can see this second book being something that is going to become quite important as as time progresses as well. Because Jessica, uh, as we said, she's the author of The Gift of Failure, and her forthcoming book is called The Addiction Inoculation, which we're going to talk about more in this interview. Uh, she also has a podcast about writing called the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast with another favorite, KJ Delantonia yep. and Serena Bowen, and she's the mom of two boys. So we hope that you enjoy our interview with Jessica Leahy. This episode is brought to you by... The drama-free homework checklist. Oh, if you are just so tired of all the fighting and the hassle and the procrastination when it comes to your kids' homework, pick up this drama-free homework checklist. It is absolutely free, and you can go get it at noguiltmom.com backslash dfh-checklist. You can also find a link to it in our show notes. And now, on with the show. You want mom life to be easier. 
That's our goal too. Our mission is to raise more self-sufficient and independent kids, and we're going to have fun doing it. We're going to help you delegate and step back. Each episode, we'll tackle strategies for positive discipline, making our kids more responsible, and making our lives better in the process. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Jessica. We're so happy to have you here. I am so excited to come back. Yay. So much fun the first time. It's going to be so much fun. So since we talked last time, like we both been following you on social media. And last night, I believe you posted something about how you totally lost control of your house. (laughs) (laughs) And somebody had a green suit on. (laughs) Yeah. So my 17 year old came down the stairs and I literally jumped. I could, I didn't know what he was because he was dressed from head to toe in this green Lycra suit. And it turns out that on the show, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. There's a reference to this, the green man thing. And my son has a discord server that he runs for producing digital music, essentially. And so he asked them what he should do for a stunt. And they, I don't, I don't actually know what he's going to do with the green man costume, but I do have a 17 year old walking around my house in head to toe lycra green like green screen green yeah it's weird it's very weird but it's fun like that's when the most interesting stuff happens well and what i love too was like so the first picture was him like in a stance right and and we'll have to include this in in the show notes (laughs) but then the next one is like your husband's just chilling on the couch with the dog like nothing's new and your son's just there in the green suit like this is an everyday we were watching there he was watching television apparently you can see through the yeah. Yeah. Oh my lord. I remember when those were really big for Halloween and like all of the Halloween stores had them. Yeah, it was like purple, yellow, yeah. green. Like yeah. you're just like one color person. Wow. Yeah. He's and he spent his own money, his hard-earned money. He worked at the he's a junior librarian until the pandemic hit. And so he spent his own hard-earned money on head to toe lycra. So there you go. There's my kid. We need to find somebody who's doing like a weather report and just let yourself. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. Pull off his head part and just be a floating head. Oh, oh my gosh, that would be so great. Actually, when my kids were really little, and I have pictures of this too, they wanted a green screen. My older son was into filming stuff. So I let them, I basically Googled, you know, what paint color from the major paint companies you can get that is green screen green. And they painted an entire wall in essentially the room, like a, a living room area. So for about a year and a half, we had the most repellent green color on one wall in a living room, but they had a lot of fun with it. It was really, really fun. And there was paint everywhere. Okay. There was paint on the dog. There was paint on the baseboard. I think the 17 year old was about five or six when I let them paint this. So you can imagine how that went, but it was oh, super gosh. fun. There's probably paint everywhere. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I can see how that goes, but green skeins are super fun and you could do a lot with them and Really yeah, and this was before stuff. it was easy to get like just the piece of fabric that I could have, you know, hung from oh. the <laughs> painting. Now it's to go paint. Paint. Once people paint. realized that it was really fun and cool, they're like, it's gotta be an easy way. And it's a hard color to cover, I will tell you that right oh, now. Oh, I bet. Ouch. I bet. Multiple. <laughs> multiple uh, coats, I'm sure. So you have a new book coming out, The Addiction Inoculation, set for release April 6th. Is that correct? April 6th that comes out. Yeah. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey guys, Brie here. And let me tell you, April is a killer time of the year for me because it is crazy allergy season. I swear, everything that is in bloom looks fantastic and beautiful, but it makes it so I can't breathe. I am literally coughing, sneezing, 
rubbing my nose. I look like Rudolph half of the spring. It's terrible. But luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies like I do, we live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can finally breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine is the best decongestant available. It relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I absolutely love it. It is the only allergy medicine that works for me. So if you're ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just one quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. You have probably heard me talk about my dog, Addie, before. And when we first got her, we didn't know that she was a counter surfer. Now, counter surfing animals are the ones who jump on counters, especially kitchen counters, when you're not looking and take stuff off of them. Well, in this instance, Addie had jumped onto the kitchen counter and eaten an entire bottle of my other dog's pain medication. You can imagine the freak out that ensued from me. So imagine this. You're at the vet's office again, knowing that vet care costs continue to rise. You're anxiously waiting to hear how expensive the bill will be. But If you had pet insurance, your pet could be covered for accidents or illnesses. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care that they may need. They allow you to customize the plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash no guilt. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Tell us a little bit about the book. So, you know, there's this scary thing that happens, this second book thing that happens when you've had a successful first book and, you know, you've poured your heart and soul into it and you had lots of time to come up with that topic. You know, then people immediately after the first book comes out, they're like, so what are you working on next? And for a long time, like four years, I was like, I don't know. And I tossed my editor and my agent actually a lot of ideas. And she's like, "Mm, not quite, Mm, not quite. And finally, one day I just had this, you know, sort of light bulb moment where I realized that the work I had been doing for five years, I was an English teacher and well, I was an everything teacher, essentially in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids, my own recovery of nearly eight years now and parenting two kids under this genetic and epigenetic specter of, you know, substance abuse, because, you know, they're 
there is an increased risk. My kids are at increased risk for substance abuse for their lifetime risk of substance abuse is up. So I wanted a book that sort of addressed, you know, I love books that are part nonfiction, part memoir, sort of the nonfiction research-based stuff and then memoir. So that's what this book is. It's sort of my story as a story of one of my, a couple, well, one of my students and the friend of one of my children, both of whom are adults now, who were really generous and shared their stories. The girl that I taught, her name is Georgia. She's in the book under her real name. She, uh, you know, quit high school, uh, heroin addict, and she had a child who had to be given up. And, you know, it's a very long and scary and she almost died. And now she's getting her master's degree in graduated college 10 years after her peers, you know, that sort of thing. And then all these other stories. Anyway, so it's memoir. It's a very research-based story of how, what do we as parents and educators and mentors and coaches do? What can we control? Because the party line on substance abuse is that it's preventable. So, but what does that mean? Mm, Like, you know, it is preventable. So now what? And what do really good programs look like? And as you're diving, as I was diving into the research and finding out crazy things like only 57% of schools in the US have any kind of substance abuse prevention program. And Mm -hmm. of those programs, only 10% of them are evidence-based. So what are we doing? You know, and and a lot of them wait until middle school. And at that point, it's too late because most kids, if they're going to try substances, try during middle school. So Mm -hmm. there's so much here about what I as a parent can do, what I as a teacher can do, what schools can do, what coach, and there's coaches can do a ton, mentors can do a ton. So I wanted to look at all the research, pull everything I could in and say, okay, what's worth talking about? What's not worth talking about? And what do we do moving forward to prevent substance use in kids? That's so interesting when you talk about schools and substance abuse programs, because it makes me think of like when we were in middle school and high school, and I can't think of any substance abuse programs other than DARE. I was going to say, we're the generation of DARE. And I I think it's really important because they talk a lot about that now. Like Mm -hmm. I've, I've been listening, well, well, Joanne, since doing this, you've turned me quite on to podcasts. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Right <laughs> and I've been listening to a few of these lately because mm-hmm. I have two kids in junior high and I'm like starting to freak out with the whole like, oh my gosh, they're getting into that stage. And I'm yeah. so yeah. ill-equipped. Like, even though I have a background somewhat in, in mental health and I worked with substance mm-hmm. abuse in college and everything, like I definitely, going back to my techniques, like it's dare is my background. And I think our whole but, generation of parents, a lot of us, that's what we know is the whole like, just say no. And as you're saying, Jessica, like that's not the tools that you need. Well, it turns out that well, Dare, and I want to give Dare props because when Dare yeah. first came out, it came out of the police force in Los Angeles. And at the time, it, that was sort of thought to be the gold standard. But what they found out was that based on the research that kids were actually more likely to use substances if they had gone through Dare than if they hadn't. So Dare actually did go back and re-engineer. It's not a program I still would recommend, but that's because the most effective programs are not exclusively substance abuse prevention programs. They are social emotional learning programs. They are programs that start like talking in kindergarten about how you, you know, if you see medication on the counter, you know, and your name is not on it, then you shouldn't be taking those things. Or here's why we brush our teeth. Here's why we wash our hands. We do these things that are good for us. And talking about like refusal skills, if someone asks you to do something that you're not comfortable with or eat something you're not comfortable with or take a medication you're not comfortable with, that you have the vocabulary and the practice to say, I'm uncomfortable with that. So it starts as like a hell 
health, you know, social emotional learning and health program from the time kids are in kindergarten and nursery school all the way through up through college. So yeah, talking about substance abuse prevention programs, we have to give the caveat that that's, we're not talking about programs that just do that because those programs don't tend to work very well. That's so important. So what I hear you saying is that kids really need to start, we need to start young and it's not just Mm -hmm. on substance abuse. It's really about, you know, teaching them how to refuse things and say no, and also good health habits. There's some really, really cool research on this thing called inoculation theory. And it turns out that when we give kids the tools to, you know, so let's say the you're worried your kid is going to get offered drugs and they want to say no, but the person who offers them, if in return to that, in in exchange for that no says, oh, well, everybody's doing it. Well, it turns mm. out that everybody's not doing it. And there is data to back that up. Like we have really good data um, based on eighth grade, 10th grade and 12th grade of who, what percentage actually is doing it. So inoculation theory is really cool because it says that if you give your kids the responses that you can give in return to the everybody's doing it, you know, it's no big deal. It won't hurt you. Come on, just, you know, any of these sort of popular retorts to know that Mm -hmm. not only does it increase the chances that your child will be protected from substance use, it also protects them against other risky behaviors. Inoculation theory has been shown, like, for example, if I'm teaching about substance abuse um, refusal skills, it also can protect them against early sexual activity. It can protect them against, you know, other high risk activities. So it's really cool in that you can teach about one behavior and it will one risk act to high risk activity and it will generalize to others. So yeah, you got to start really early and it all comes down to like, why do we put things in our body and what do we put in our body and why? And let's see, let's look at this in the book. I get really granular and I actually give like scripts and stuff. So like if you're with your kid and you're in the bathroom brushing teeth and there's medication thing on the counter and your kid is learning their letters, you can say, what letters do you see? And what recognize? What do you recognize? Or if your kid's learning how to read, you, you can say, is mommy's name on that? Or can you find our address on that? And whose name is on that? And if your name is on it, not your kid's name, it's a great moment to say. So you can never take these, right? Because these are just for mommy and they're prescribed by my doctor in an amount that's just right for me and my body and not for anybody else. And those are conversations that start really early. Yeah, that's amazing because I would have never thought to go over that with my kids in terms of medication and pill bottles. I wouldn't have I've, I haven't and talked I really to them about thought. this. I feel bad. I'm like, yeah. oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> there's, you know, there's all kinds of jokes to be made about. I mean, David Sedaris in one of his books jokes about the fact that his dad took antibiotics that was meant for his dog because his dad was like, ah, antibiotics are antibiotics. But, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then there's the whole like, you know, we do it all the time. There's that whole, you know, thing that you see on television about, oh, you're really stressed out here. Take one of my Xanax, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And kids see those all the time. And what's amazing to dive into is the research on what kids see and what that does to them in terms of their understanding of how we use drugs and alcohol. In fact, I was doing a podcast the other, I was doing a a live speaking event the other night online and comments were coming in with questions and answers. And one parent made the joke about how I said something about giving ourselves a break right now during the pandemic, because, you know, we just need to give ourselves and our kids a break. And one woman made a joke about going and having a glass of wine. And I said, not to call you out or anything, but I just want to point out that we can say all we want to our kids about how we use substances to, you know, whether they're prescribed for us or not. And when we tell kids that, you know, you really can't use alcohol as a way with coping with your stress, you really have to work on that stress or work on that discomfort or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so when our kids see us repeatedly turn to wine as like the thing we need in order to come down from a really stressful day, that sends a really important message to them about why we drink and what we drink and how much we drink. That's a really, really interesting thought because that's become kind of part of our everyday language. Like 
you have yeah. a stressful day and I need a drink yep. is like it's almost automatic for many parents to say. However, yeah. like parents do like they do like have a choice to like drink some wine. So like of course. My husband drinks, actually. My husband drinks. He doesn't have a problem. And, you know, so our kids have me as an example in terms of abstinence and they have my husband and, you know, as an example in terms of uh, moderation. If you so as an adult who does like do moderation, like how would you say we describe that to kids like when they do see us having a drink? You know, some people reach into the whole, you know, I like it. I'm a wine aficionado. I whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I like to have a beer every now and then. I really like beer or, you know, those sorts of things. But I think we also have to have the conversation about the fact that, yeah, a beer may help me unwind at the end of the day, but it doesn't take my problems away. I mean, I think a lot of kids who start using substances are using them to escape from some, well, they're using it for multiple reasons, but one of them is to escape from trauma and pain and, or discomfort over their learning issues or discomfort over social ostracism, a whole bunch of these other risk factors. You know, when kids start using to avoid that pain, it becomes really important to talk to them about the fact that, you know, when you use a substance, it doesn't take that problem away, it just delays it and often compounds the consequences you're going to have to deal with later. So I think that line is a really important one. Like, you know, I had a really stressful day, you know, I'm going to have this glass of wine, but I also have to come up with a strategy for dealing with the thing that made me really stressed out today. That problem doesn't go away. Yeah. That's a clear distinction. That's a clear distinction about like, I like wine versus like, I'm going to just drink so that I don't have to feel my feelings. It's also important to remember that, you know, it's only 10% of people that are going to develop, you know, if it, it, 10% of people, well, I should say it the other way, 90% of people can drink, can use some drugs and be, you know, not get addicted to those things. And yes, some things are more addictive than others, but for the 10% that can't, that's what I'm really curious about. Like those, the kids who do have a higher risk, and this book is for everyone, but because my perspective is someone whose kids do have a higher risk, what are the kinds of things you say to them? because I can't, the same things that would work with most kids about why you don't drink and and what it looks like when you become a little too excited about that drink at the end of the day. Those are the conversations I have to have with my kids. Hey all, it is Joanne and Bree here. And we want to tell you about a podcast that you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Uturbe. And it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And in this latest season of Understood Explains, it covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. We actually just listened to the episode, IEPs, Does My Child Need an IEP? And here is what we loved about it. I loved that it was so digestible. Like it was such a short episode and all of the topics, which could be really confusing to parents, were easily explained. And I loved how they gave great concrete examples because you know how much I love me a good example. They explained what kind of services and supports you could actually see on a child's IEP or individual education plan. And they explained those acronyms that nothing drives me more crazy than when there's acronyms and I don't get it. I don't know what it stands for. They took the time to explain everything in so much detail and to cover concerns that a lot of families have about special ed services. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains, or just click on the link in our show notes. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? 
play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So I had a question, something that you just brought up. Uh, you talked about how your kids are have a higher risk and you already had mentioned earlier because or family history, right? What are some right. other factors that families may need to keep an eye out on that puts their children at a higher risk? Yeah. So let's just start with the genetics thing. So the genetics thing is 50 to 60% of the picture right there. So a lot of people will simplify all the way down to, and I don't, but a lot of people will simplify all the way down to genetic is the key that you stick in the ignition, right? But then trauma is turning the key. So like, there's this idea that like trauma in lots of different forms. And so that's one reason that what's called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs are really important to understand. And I highly recommend Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well. She really, she's a pediatrician, does an incredible job of going into the role of ACEs. So ACEs are things like, you know, there was addiction in the home, there's violence in the home. There are lots of other, there's a score that you can get. It's really easy. Go online, Google ACE quiz or adverse child experiences quiz and it'll come right up. You can get your ACE score. We'll add that in the show notes, everybody. Yeah, it's really easy to find. And it's a CDC Kaiser Permanente thing. And it's it's fantastic. And it's a huge, they've looked at it in huge numbers. So there's those things, but then there's things like early childhood aggression is a risk factor for substance abuse and early, uh, you know, academic failure, social ostracism. But you can also see how those things get really complicated because early aggression can turn into social ostracism and early you know, uh, academic issues can turn into social ostracism or aggression because kids are frustrated. So it's really early. It's important to get early interventions for those things so that we can untangle those things before they get all tangled up in each other. But then you have to realize also there is no gene for substance abuse, right? And I mentioned genetics and epigenetics. Epigenetics are not so much about our DNA, but about how parts of our DNA are expressed based on what happens in our environment. So for example, if you have someone who is violent in the home, it can actually cause your genes to express in different ways. And that can set you up for substance abuse. So anyway, the cool thing about the genes is that they're not only is there not one particular gene for substance abuse, a lot of the genes that we look at as suspecting that they have something to do with it also influence personality. So there's personality types that tend to be that I would just keep an eye on, you know, thrill seekers, like compulsive novelty seekers. Um, You need to keep an eye on kids who have early who have diagnoses of ADD and ADHD. And there's a whole book on that. Uh, Gabor Mate writes about ADD and ADHD and the risks there. So there's a lot to look at, but I picture it like a scale and the more risk fa- and knowing your risk factors, you and the, the, the I love the name of your podcast because this is so not about guilt, right? No. This is about having the information. Mm-hmm. Like even if you had a problem with substances and you've gotten better, you can't feel guilty about that stuff. That's in the past. Right. What you need to know is the information of what's my kid's risk, how much risk is on the this side of the scale so that I can heap as much prevention as possible on the other side of the scale to outweigh that. And so much of the book is spent on, okay, some people talk about, I don't know, and having an animal 
does that really help? Doing mindfulness exercises, does that really help? All of these different things that there's sort of anecdotal evidence out there, I wanted to dive in and say, okay, well, does this really help? And can I trick my child into trying it with me to see what that experience is like? So the whole book is about knowing what the risks are and then, okay, let's talk about all the protections we can heap on our kids. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you saying, it's a lot about education and educating your kids as far as like what to look out for and what to be aware of. And something that I saw actually mentioned in your the review that you posted, the early review of your book, is how these shame strategies that have been used for years, yeah. they don't work. Yeah. No, they don't work at all. That's why, well, just say no doesn't work because that's not real. Those aren't real refusal skills. You know, from my perspective as a kid who grew up with, in a house with substance abuse, you know, often what'll happen is, you know, you, the kids will get totally gaslit by, you know, people who are like, no, 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 that's not what you see. No, 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 your parent is fine. No, 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 that's not what's happening. And um, in fact, almost too. Yeah. And there's, and there's, there's just living what we know for a fact that people who live with lies and secrecy have increased risk of because secrets do actually make us sick. It's a line from, you know, yes, that's a line from recovery. We're only as sick as our secrets, but it does happen to be true when you look at the research on what secrets and shame and, you know, go look at Brene Brown for her, all of her stuff on shame. That's what sort of keeps us sick. And lying to our kids really, really just doesn't work mainly because they're smart enough to see through our lies and then they can't trust us. They are. they are. And they they remember that stuff. So like another thing I'm hearing with all of this is not only like giving them the strategies, which by the way, I love that you do that in the book, because mm-hmm. I, I think we've found that a lot with No Guilt Mom. Like a lot of us, we just need someone to, yeah. it's nice to tell us we have to do it, but give me yeah. somewhere right. to start. Give me an example. And that can be so helpful. But another thing I'm hearing you say too, is that that connection, keep that connection, which keep we say the all the time when we've heard from every person we've talked to. Yeah. The connection yeah. is so important. Well, also it's interesting because in a lot of families, like the family culture is, oh, we don't talk about those things. Like we yeah. don't talk about them. Well, yeah. this whole, the whole and thing around substances. Yeah. You don't, talk, yeah. You don't about talk about it. That's like, that's a shameful thing. We don't talk about it. And we, you're saying is the exact opposite. Like bring it out in the open give kids the knowledge that they need, know their risk factors and just make sure that you're there to connect with them. Okay. Well, let's really, really, really play this down to a real basic level. Like it, we don't take that approach of let's not talk about it with other dangers in life. Like we don't tell our yeah. kids, don't, sit there and <laughs> don't tell them about the importance of not running into the street. We tell them if you right. run in the street, you're going to yeah. get hit by a car. You don't touch fire because it's hot. Oh, but right. drugs and alcohol over there. Oh, we just don't, we don't talk about that. Yeah. But also think about the way we talk about those things. And, and, and I use the example of how we do like quote the sex talk. Well, there is no one sex talk. There is a lot, there are a lot of age appropriate conversations throughout, you know, life. And it's the yeah. same thing with drugs and alcohol. Like you're not going to have a conversation with a six-year-old about not shooting heroin, but you are, <laughs> you can have a conversation about, you know, when you're watching television and there's a beer commercial on. And one thing that we actually do a lot in our family, mainly because we're so contrary and don't like to be manipulated. You know, my kids joke about like, what are they selling there? Because it looks like they're selling, you know, if you drink this thing, then you'll have a lot of really pretty friends and and you'll, you know, that kind of thing. So having these conversations about the media and, you know, what they're seeing and hearing. And I go into the book on exposures that even very young children have to drugs and alcohol, Um, even in cartoons, it's crazy high. And here's one interesting thing. Kids as young as four, when they have a substance abusing parent in the house, can differentiate between non-alcoholic drinks and alcoholic drinks. Kids as young as 
four, if you lined up sodas and beers, they could pull out which ones are alcoholic and which ones are not. And that was in kids who you know are dealing with that in their home. So kids know they're seeing the marketing, especially kids who are big sports fans because of the amount of money that's spent to put right. alcohol in front of kids, you know, in, in terms of sports. And the one thing I really want to stress here is I'm not saying you can't drink. I'm not saying you can't watch sports. I'm not saying it's bad that alcohol companies purchase places on athletes' bodies to stick stickers and things like that. I'm not saying any of that is bad. I'm saying this is the world we live in. So how do we take that information, use it to our advantage in order to help protect our kids from needing to turn to drugs and alcohol later on? And there's there are very real things that I had never heard until I started researching them. There's this thing called pluralistic ignorance. It's really cool. It turns out if you ask a person, a kid, let's say a kid, in college. Ask that person how much they think their roommate drinks. Generally speaking, unless you know their roommate is a non-drinker, they will overestimate how much their roommate drinks. We tend to overestimate how much other people care about drugs and alcohol. So that means that not only are we not offering opportunities to have non-alcoholic sort of events in colleges, it also means that for boys, they will up their consumption to match what their perception is, not reality, mm-hmm. perception of how much alcohol matters to other people. But girls, tend to not do that. What they tend to do is withdraw and isolate. So there's this pluralistic ignorance thing is fascinating. The research on that is fascinating because we're not reacting in places like college, especially to reality of how many other people are drinking. We're reacting to our very flawed perception of how much other people are drinking. So just knowing that, that's power. Just knowing that information is part of giving inoculation theory a a chance to really take hold with kids. That's amazing. I cannot wait until your book comes out and to read everything that I can do that. And it's April 6th again, the addiction inoculation. Please pre-order for those of you out in the audience who don't understand how publishing works. Publishing pre-orders are so important to authors because it signals to the publisher how many people might buy this book and how many books to order. So if you wait until April 6th and it's out of stock, it's because, you know, people didn't pre-order. So there you go. Yes, you heard Jessica. Go (laughs) pre-order right now. You could do that on Amazon. We will have a link. (laughs) Jessica, it's been a joy having you as always. It's so much fun. I learned so much every time you come on. Okay, every time we talk to Jessica, I leave with something new. I just love that she wrote this book. I think it took a lot of time and self-reflection, as she mm-hmm. talked about, to, mm-hmm. to write about something so personal yeah. to her, her experiences uh, growing up in an addiction type um, environment, and then also going through that herself, and then trying to normalize it and prepare her children. I think that she has some amazing, amazing information that's going to be invaluable to parents and teachers. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so interesting how she talked about like the genetic component of addiction. But Mm -hmm. just because you have like addiction in your family, it doesn't mean that gene will be turned on. And that's something that I didn't know about that like those adverse childhood experiences, they are things that turn that gene on. And they're a way that like people look to cope with having like those strong emotions and strong feelings. And that's something that Like, I I think I've heard in the past, but she really made it clear that, hey, this is what's going on. And this is why people need to know if they have a genetic component for alcoholism or addiction, just so they can be aware of how they're dealing with feelings. 
You're right. You're right. Because, you know, again, coming back to that adverse childhood experiences, it's interesting. It's this phenomenal study that was done back in the 90s in California through Kaiser Permanente. And you only know about it if you're in a certain field. Mm -hmm. Like the average Joe has no idea what we're talking about Mm -hmm. because they haven't had that experience. So we do have a link to this in the show notes if you'd like to learn some more about it. But and again, it's just talking about how certain experiences can put you at higher risk for different things in your life when you grow up, including addiction, mental health, um, rehabilitation, run-ins with the law, so many different things that can occur. And it doesn't mean that you're doomed if you have these experiences. We here at the No Guilt Mom podcast believe like knowledge is really power. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And if you know that there's a risk, then you're more likely to like be aware of it and you're able to take steps to kind of mitigate that. And I think that Jessica talks about that so much and uh, when she was talking about the book and her experiences with her children, mm-hmm. how she brings it right out. She just talks about it right yeah. out from the get-go. Because I think a lot of times, and I know I'm guilty of this for sure, when there's really tough discussions with my kids, I have to really hype myself up for them because I get nervous. I get scared. Am I going to say something wrong? Am I going to put it out the wrong way? I really don't want to talk about this because maybe if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hashtag stick in the head in the sand. It does not make things go away. Oh. I've tried it with my bills. So that <laughs> totally, it totally reminds me of something. So we've been watching Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist mm-hmm. and we're now caught up. So we're now waiting for the next episode, which is the end of March. But um, one of the episodes, it was after we did this interview with Jessica, and I'm so thankful because it helped me handle the situation better, is that um, Zoe's like next door neighbor comes back home and he is kind of like the free spirit. He just like takes Makes things as they come, where Zoe's like very type A and likes to like do things and keep things accomplished. Anyways, he pulled out a bottle of pills and they decided that they were going to do pills and basically be <sighs> stoned the whole day. And it was this episode. And, you know, that combined with musicals, you can kind of like see where that's going. But it really brought up the conversation with my kids because I had never talked to them about pills or anything before. And you weren't expecting that to come and up I in that episode. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And so we were all watching it. And I'm like, so like, what do you think of Zoe doing these pills? And they're like, oh, like my, my son, who I worry about the most, honestly, he's like, oh, it's fine, right? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and we dialed it back and we had a really great conversation about like, you know, they put you out of control. You don't know if they're safe. You don't know what's in them. And just asking them those questions and kind of leading them through it. It was good. The outcome was good. And right. actually, Zoe, she did a lot of things she regretted and she couldn't take care of situations while she was on that those pills and so we did like make those consequences really really prevalent as well <laughs> well another great thing that i think you just showed that you did is you also pointed out how you gave them dialogue mm-hmm. and that was another thing jessica talked about giving your kids dialogue so they know what to do what they know what to talk about because when, th- when you're in the moment mm-hmm. it's hard to think through those processes especially for children yeah and so. i i went right back to jessica and i'm like okay what did she say it was the questions okay i'll just start asking questions <laughs> right <laughs> oh, so so you definitely have to pick up Jessica's book. It's mm-hmm. on pre-order right now. The Addiction Inoculation will have a link in the show notes for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely a must read. And until next time, remember the best mom's a happy mom. Take care of you. We'll see you later. Thanks so much for stopping by.
right? It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking